Welcome to The Drift, your resource on all things business strategy, entrepreneurship, and leadership. I'm your host, Aloiza, and today's guest is Arielle Moyal, founder and CEO of Moyal Enterprises. Prior to her role, Arielle served as the Vice President of Baseball and Softball Marketing, PR, and Digital Strategy at Rep1 Sports, led marketing at BDA Sports Management, and was a key front office member for the Sacramento Kings, not to mention also spent some time working in support of the UCLA men's basketball program. Now, with Moyal Enterprises, she's driving athletes, teams, and sports brands to success using her expertise in sports brand management, among others. Welcome, Arielle. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you too. And I think that we're going to be able to touch on some really, really interesting topics, especially because this is a very, very special year for sports, especially women and sports. Mm -hmm. And I know that you and your team have been doing some work along that space too. But I think generally speaking, getting an understanding of your own thought processes, how you think about thought leadership, leadership development, sports marketing, all the things, all to say. Uh, We're really excited to get have you on here. So with that said, to kick us off, can you share with us a little background on yourself and what got you started? Yeah, um, I love my background because I think it's a tale of showing people that you can really start over whenever you want. So what most people don't realize about me is I actually wanted to be a surgeon. So I was pre-med at UCLA. I had a really bad injury at the end of my high school uh, soccer season. And I didn't walk for six months. It was, I blew up my ankle and I, it affects me to this day. And in that process, while I was not the kind of soccer player that would have been recruited by UCLA, I did have some interest from other schools, especially D2 and had an option to pursue some of those interest conversations or to get a better education. And knowing that I wanted to be a doctor, I decided to go to UCLA, which I will never regret. It was one of the best experiences of my life. But in that, I was a chemistry major. I interned for the Cedars-Sinai Neuroscience Department. I interned in the Kaiser Permanente Suicide Watch. I did all the OCHEM and all the things we think about with pre-med. But I also needed a job while I was in college. And so I figured I would work in the athletic department because I was an athlete, right? Like, I can do this like the back of my hand kind of thing. And I'll just work in athletics. So I worked in the recruiting and compliance department for UCLA for four years, and I became one of their key athlete recruiter or student athlete recruiters. And I recruited a number of people to UCLA, quite a few that actually are still professional athletes to this day. Um, I specialized mainly in football and baseball, assisted on basketball and other Olympic sports. When I was graduating in 2009, so I'm going to age myself, I needed to take the MCAT. MCAT is hard. It takes about two years to study for. And so I was thinking to myself, well, shit, I need to get a job and I need to take this MCAT. What do I do? And this role in the UCLA men's basketball team opened and it was to be the um, administrative, the other admin assistant, because there is a director of administration that still is there. Dougie Erickson giving you a shout out to year 30 with UCLA this year. Congratulations. Um, But I was like, perfect. They're going to go on the road. They're going to take flights. I'm just going to study at this desk. Great. And so I got recommended for that job and had to apply for it. There were other people that applied and I wound up getting that role. Again, intention of two years. I left five years later and there was a part of me that just really loved what I was doing with, with athletes. I think that the one big part of my role, which was sort of the, the executive assistant work for the head coach, I was terrible at. And I, I knew I was. I'm not great at remembering a name and 
I'm probably not great at some other EA items. But what I did do was I developed an alumni department that they just never had. They have lost their ties to all of these historic players that wouldn't had and whatnot. And I really built a robust sort of alumni base. I did player development. I was excellent with ops. I was really good with the boosters. And I kind of thought about all those things that made me good there and the things that I wasn't so good at and really leaned into figuring out if I could make a career in sports work within athlete verticals because that seemed to be where I was thriving. And so it was a Wednesday and I had just gotten coffee and I'll never forget when the general manager of the Sacramento Kings called me on the phone and I did not understand how he had gotten my phone number. And somebody knew that I was looking to leave because I had done a coaching transition at UCLA and that's always tricky you kind of get a new staff, you don't know what to expect. And I loved Steve Alford as well. You know, I worked for Ben Howland for four years, but it was just a different system. And I think it was at that point time to leave. I had outgrown it. I was 27. And their role was to do player development for the Sacramento Kings. And I evaluated what that would mean. And I jumped on the chance and I interviewed for that. Um, I was really lucky. Somebody in my life had recommended me for that job without telling me. And I went to Sacramento. So I did the Sacramento Kings player development role. Um, and then I did the uh, also player education and sort of all the athlete verticals for the Kings. When I left Sacramento, it's to it was to come home to work for legendary Bill Duffy in his agency BDA to do uh, marketing and client relations. And then from there, I went to Rep One, where I started as the director of baseball, then became the vice president of baseball, also created their basketball division, became the vice president of basketball, uh, created their NIL division as well, and oversaw that too. So I have um, mainly experience in basketball, but I have touched on a lot of different sports and I spent a lot more time in the previous part of this story because I think it's important for people to, to hear that you can change your life whenever you want to. Um, but essentially for almost 17 years, it'll be 17 years this August, I've essentially been working with athletes. That's what my bread and butter is. Oh my gosh. I think that we can definitely talk about so many different <laughs> topics here. Um, you know, I, if I think about it though, because I am also in some shape or form still inside the sports industry. And what's interesting about your background and this overarching theme that no matter where you are in your career, there is an opportunity for you to make a pivot mm -hmm. in any way that you think is actually going to make the most sense for you. And something that I'm mostly tied to at the moment is actually from an athlete's side. Mm -hmm. And I think that perfect example is actually your, your specific story is when you're in the role of an athlete and you're spending hours and hours and hours, your entire life is dedicated to being in that position, to being a part of that team. Mm -hmm. The moment that you step out of that role, the moment that you go on to that next phase of your life, it really is a completely new direction. Perfect case in point. Right now, um, I work with a lot of former MLB and MILB um, minor league players. Okay. And what, what I'm starting to realize is that these players have dedicated their entire life right to the game. And perhaps they may have stepped out of the game in a way that they weren't necessarily, it wasn't as favorable to them. They had an injury, something along those lines, something mm -hmm. that was an out of the blue circumstance, but they want to give back to the game. So perhaps now they have an opportunity to go back into the game by becoming a instructor, a coach, anything along those lines, but it's something mm -hmm. that they never really witnessed before. And I think the, the grand scheme or kind of like big picture main main point here of me just rambling a lot of different random things is like two points. One, you're exactly right. You can always pivot. You can always, always pivot. 
Um, and I think stepping outside of that comfort zone that you have right now is really going to change the tra- trajectory of where you could possibly go. And you just sometimes never know. It's good mm-hmm. to have a mentor that can help steer that direction. Um, but I think secondly, too, which I'd love to get your understanding of is really taking a look at like what's happening in the sports world. Mm-hmm. And also with your own specific experiences, how each sport varies from another. I'm sure that you've seen quite yeah. a lot of differences between basketball and football and baseball. So what are, what are your thoughts on all of those? You know, part of why I created the business I did was, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I actually, the way we describe ourselves is we are experts in the business of athletes. So I don't call myself a sport marketing firm because that's not what we specialize in. When I say we, there's more than just myself. So it's a reiteration of that myself and the team I've built. We are all people that have been working one-on-one with athletes for a very long time. And either on teams, in leagues, for agencies, for brands, whatever that might be. And what that allows us to do, and our tagline is that you're either an athlete yourself that is looking for assistance or representation outside your playing contract. So that could be everything from business development to digital to equity analysis to contract work in you know on marketing or other employment agreements, whatever that is. And or you're a team agency or sports brand that needs entrance into growth within or business development within athlete verticals. Because people are a very different commodity than a thing. And what I think people forget often in sports is that the consumptive element of what runs sports is a human being. And without understanding that there has to be a human element to your business, you're going to fall flat, especially if you approach people as a commodity or an inanimate object. You cannot do that. So there's a very particular way in which you interact best with athletes. So in that and kind of on the landscape of sports, You know, in communicating with fan bases, I think that is a big driver for how you grab people in. Look, you're coming because you love the Phillies or you're going because you love like the Red Stars or the Dodgers or whatever it is. But that game's not played unless people are playing it. And and so for me, I think that what has been fun to see on the communication within fan bases on, you know, in sports is this growth of risk. So I think that teams are being riskier in how they communicate with fans. So right, the traditional communication styles are being broken. And while sport events of the past felt very consumptive, you sort of paid to watch an event, you heard the action, you were there to be a spectator. I think now teams have figured out a way to make the game a little bit more interactive. And that lends itself, right? So if you've got players on a court or on a field or whatever, and you're understanding people are involved, I think it's smart that you're now involving fans as humans. Like, again, not just as consumptive elements. And so I think it feels less like a spectator situation and more like something to participate in. And there's really real pros in that. There's obviously some downsides. I would say that I've seen some social media personnel get fired over risky tweets and or other things that didn't sort of land properly. But I love when brands get catchy, like, you know, like kitschy with somebody online. I love when somebody takes a little bit of a risk and a reply and you're like, oh, that was a great clap back or whatever that might be. And I think that kind of lends to this feeling that like the entity behind the computer, which is behind the Cardinals Twitter account actually is, has a personable element to it. So if anything, I think this risk taking and communication styles that, that uh, sports has been taking recently has a lot of upside if you do it well. 
That certainly makes sense because I like think back of the age old saying of businesses need to lead, need to learn how to become more transformational as opposed to mm-hmm. transactional. And that perfectly is a transferable, it could be like I got transferable and transactional, transformational all in the same sentence. That was a great one. Too many teams. Uh, but, I, I, <laughs> but I think they all kind of like really go one in hand, one another, especially in the sports world. Right. Um, if I look back at it, Right. At the end of the day, sports teams, their number one objective is to be able to grow their fan base and get some more users, audience members in their stadiums and their seats. And in order to do so, people nowadays, they're they're really purchasing with their emotions and they have to be incredibly emotionally tied to the brand. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious then, in your perspective, is that something that could ultimately be, or is it a general foundation across all sports? Or do you find that how a sports team communicates with their fan base could also really differ between like the actual sport that they're operating in? Like, is there a difference in communication tactics between baseball, softball, football, you name it? Well, of course there's differences. If you just look at the way that basketball players present themselves online, it's very different than baseball players. There, I mean, I could, we could have an entire conversation as to why leagues differ, why certain players get paid more. That's usually because of exposure potential and a lot of other things. I mean, um, seriously, we could have a whole other conversation on this. Um, and I think that emotions are tied in, but I'm actually going to go back to something you said about, you know, Sports teams are looking to grow fan bases to get butts and seats. Ticket sales are actually not the major generator for sports. It's com- it's concessions and merchandise. That is the higher generator. Uh, that is why if you only were to base team um, financial you know, ability based on how many people are in seats, well, then you would be concerned if you were going to a midday Dodgers game and you only saw probably 20% of the stadium filled. Partnerships are a huge component general business development, but in terms of what fans can control, it is actually merchandise and concession purchase. So why a Farmer John hot dog that I can go get a 12 pack out at the store for $1.50 is $7.75 when I go to Dodger Stadium. Now, when it comes to emotions, I actually, I'm going to deviate from your question a little bit because I think that purchasing with emotions when it comes to sport all the time results in, is, results in impulsivity that isn't good for a brand. So we're already on a heightened level of emotions when we're talking about sport because sport is a thing that is done by and for people. So people are emotional beings. So the people performing are emotional and the consumer is also very emotional. Um, But a great example of emotion-driven responses I don't appreciate in sports and actually think that does bad for sports is something like, when people burn jerseys when a player leaves a team or does poorly. I mean, the other week, Suns fans were burning Chris Paul jerseys because he did poorly in a Game 7 playoffs. Like, why are you doing that? And I don't necessarily think emotional drivers are always the best. And yet, here's the irony. I'm aware that humans are driven by feelings. And if you want a consumer to remember your product or brand, they must be engaged and impassioned by the interaction with your company. So for a team, there absolutely has to be a level of emotional attachment to create a fan base. But if it's always your driver, 
then you'd see people quit their teams in waves when they lose. Or you'd probably get more volatile with fans of opposing teams who say something negative about your team. So teams have to inspire consumers by offering adventure through the act of competition, but they can't take it too far. So how can teams do that? I think you have to offer a range of experiences that make people feel good about being a part of something, right? A part of a community. Because in my opinion, that's what sports fandom really is. It's a chance to be a part of a group of a group of humans, right, that ultimately want to feel like they belong to a pack. It's a primal part of who we are as people. But within those experiences, you need some rationality. You need per purchasing is highly individual, and it depends on the person making the decision, the product, and the other circumstances. If sports teams approach their business with one lens, they always leave money on the table. So you have to find your balance. This is exactly right. Now I have so many, so many different questions for you. I told you, just invite me back like five times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're really speaking on a lot of important, important things that need to be addressed, right? And I think one, first and foremost, you're exactly right that we need to be able to channel those emotions in the most effective way. And the second thing that I started to think about is, you know, I think the fundamental theme is loyalty, how do you build loyalty, right? And I think I heard actually a couple weeks ago a fairly alarming way, and I, I uh, Ray actually didn't even know, but you actually might have a better idea. It thinks like less than 20% of the market can actually afford to go to a stadium game. Less than 20% of the market can actually go to the game. However, that is surely not the actual market share for the fan base that this, that's within that specific market. Because ultimately, now you're touching on them, one of the biggest revenue drivers. They're still being able to be a part of that experience through merchandise mm -hmm. that they can that they can purchase outside of the stadium. They can watch the game online. They can go to the restaurant, go to the bar with their friends, and be able to be part of that broader community and still be a part of the experience. So one question I was thinking of what I was listening to this is when you think about the experience, right, and building on that community. I think that now, because of the advancements of technology, there's a way that you can build those little, like I guess, kind of quote unquote micro communities through mm -hmm. the different channels, in person, online, all the different types of methods nowadays that brands are able to interact with with their fan base. How do you how do you think about that? Is that sort of like in the direction that you're that you were speaking to? Yeah, you know. I, it's interesting you brought up loyalty. I actually talk about a team I love dearly. I have been a fan of since I was a child. I'm LA born and raised. But I think that the Dodgers choosing to capitalize financially with a Spectrum TV deal, which completely blacks out anybody in LA from watching that on TV, is not okay. I will always say that. I don't watch Dodger games because I'm not getting cable just to watch Dodger games. And so I think the Dodgers, despite how much I love them, guide with their pockets way too often. And it pisses people off. I think that people in the baseball community would agree with me. Counter that to the system in, with the Braves, when Truist Park, when it opened, they offered affordable concessions so that families of four could come to a game and not break the bank. And do you know what wound up happening? They made more money because people consumed more. There's, there's a balance that needs to be walked. I think the Braves did it well. I think the Dodgers missed the mark very often. Let's also take the layer of where the Dodgers exist. It's Los Angeles. You really think I'm going to make a Wednesday 1 p.m. game when I work? But now you're also going to block me off from watching you? 
Is that really the kind of fan base you want? Because what it feels like is you just care about a certain group of people that have deep pockets. You don't actually care about the people that are loyal to you. I think there's a problem in that conception. In general, though, when we're talking about technology and digital channels and how they sort of, you're creating this balance between the human, the in-person, those kind of elements, I struggle with this. And I think it's because I have a biased lens when I perceive, because I'm perceiving what I want. So I'm 35. I'm the generation that created social media. But it doesn't mean that I consume or live social media the way that other generations do. So recently I heard someone in my network talking with a younger Gen Z or individual and this person who's also older than myself. They were challenging the, uh, the idea of entirely living in a virtual world. I really saw myself in that speaker. I want to go on hikes. I want to disconnect. I want to like be outside. I want to be with friends. I don't always need to be present on a digital space. I like to create a real reality for myself that I enjoy. I don't get lost in digital realities of second worlds. Um, but the Gen Z individual was very nonchalant in the idea of existing in virtual spaces only. Like they had no problem with that. And it was kind of tough for me to digest that this person was completely content with making their reality, whatever they wanted to make in the metaverse. And I think that idea right there shows you that you have to appeal to vast fan bases who want different things. You're going to probably connect with younger people digitally. You're not going to probably connect with them as well as you do as in person activations with older generations that still like the old entertainment models. So you need to find that balance. And even if something's uncomfortable for me, like when it comes to clients, I have clients who thrive in foreign spaces that I don't quite understand or have questions for. And so for me personally, I have to do my best to continually learn and grow so that I'm equipped to be a sounding board that listens and hears their interests rather than push somebody into my own just because that's more comfortable for me. It's, it's the client driving the conversation ultimately. So I have to be open and being open to that conversation also requires me to continue learning. So through this evolution of technology and digital channels and sports in particular, I, I do think that this balance between the human, the in-person and the community uh, online fan bases really matter. But I also think you can't assume that one way is better than the other. I think you're going to have people that are well-rounded that touch on all of them. And then you're going to have people that are just consumed by one lane and that's completely okay. And I think that you just mentioned a really, really important note here. So you're putting this into practice yourself, right? Like this right. is the exact philosophy that you actually take with you whenever you're working with your clients. Because at the end of the day, I'm assuming too that with the work that you're doing, the different athletes, the sports teams, the brands that you're working with, they may actually all be talking to a completely different user and a completely mm -hmm. different fan base. And in order to, again, kind of building on um, one of our original points, the concept of loyalty, in order for you to create a loyal following, in order for you to create that sense of loyalty amongst your brand, personal, professional, you name it, you have to be able to meet the consumers where they are and not only meet them where they are. I think that's an important one. I think it's also something that everybody's starting to reiterate on, but even more importantly, where they're going mm -hmm. And you have to really find that perfect balance between the two. So speaking along those lines, I'd love to just get some, some, some advice from you is when you're thinking about 
how these athletes and sports teams can really create that deep-rooted connection with their fan base or relationships with others. What other frameworks, thought processes, philosophies would you would you recommend? The first thing I ever do with a client, um, the wording may be different if it's a brand versus a person, but it's the similar concept. So for people, I ask them what their motivators are. If you are motivated by money, that means that I will only find you paid deals. I'm not going to waste my time on, on exposure items. I'm not going to waste my time on PR that, that doesn't pay. I'm not, I'm going to just decline it because you've told me that money is your number one factor. If your other motivators are different than that, we work through what that might mean. How that works for brands is I ask them, what are their priorities and our goals for their marketing initiatives for this coming year? And how can we support those? I don't want to tell you what you have to do. You know what your brand is ultimately better than anybody else. So I'm going to be honest about seeing what verticals or or, um, other things align with that instead of redesigning the wheel for you. Both of those ideas come back to this place of listening to that person. You are going to be, it's what I said before, the client is the driver of the conversation. They have me on staff to advise them, but in order for you to come off good to fans, good to brands, good to all those things, it's an authentic narrative. I have to know what that authenticity is. Part of that is also building their trust. So especially with athletes, to accomplish their goals and not the goals I have for them, it requires them to be vulnerable with me and that requires a level of trust. So making sure that those vulnerabilities are heard and validated um, and making sure that you know players know that what you're trying to do is in your best interest. There was a very simple digital thing I did today for a player and um, he didn't like the caption. I asked him why and I said, great, we're gonna learn through this together. There was one thing I thought that he was thinking about in a narrow scoped lens. I explained why I did something the way that I did as it would benefit him overall for the digital item we did. And he was like, oh, I totally see that. Okay, yeah, keep that. So I heard what he said. I changed the direction based on the feedback, but I also felt confident enough with him to suggest where he could do better. And I think that trust level is really important and it's a trust level from both sides. I mean... There's also oftentimes this thing where people ask me kind of like what my like secret is for just like doing well with athletes. And I, I tell them it's really not much of a secret other than a couple rules in life that I follow. And that's ultimately honesty, integrity, respect, and accountability. And after that, for people in particular, I treat them like I do everybody else. There's so many people that are just present around athletes for their own clout gain, and they're not there for good intention. And so I don't care if you are the biggest athlete in the world. If you disrespect me, you're going to hear why, and I'm going to tell you to not do that again, the same way that I would tell another person. Um, I want to mention something here for businesses, because I know that part of the what we had agreed to discuss was the inspiration for other female entrepreneurs. And I think this is something to really think about because there have been too many rooms that I have been in where I have to ask for respect before I can even tell my idea and it's exhausting. So here's something that I've sort of learned over time. When you're working with businesses, so this is not really a tip for a deeper connection, but I think it's a tip for successful communication. I don't think it's possible to have a deeper connection with a business but there is a formula for how you can make a bigger impact for things that probably matter to you. 
So oftentimes with big businesses, I think that there's a disconnect, disconnect with morals and values that you as an individual may have versus what your employer as a company does. And I know we hope that our employer would always be as considerate as we are, but that isn't always the case. And I think we all know that very well. So if you lead with morality and morality all the time, you're probably not going to be heard. Terrible to think about, but it's the, it's the honest truth. But if you lead with morality and then you end with how the company is either going to make money or lose money by not following that morality, you'll usually have a better response outcome. And added bonus, if you can come with the solution to the problem being proposed so that no one has to do extra work and you've essentially made it foolproof to not be listened to, it's really hard to get a no. And I know this isn't a glamorous reply to sort of the business or team side of this question, but I think it's a necessary piece of knowledge. I don't even know how I can answer, uh, how I can ask any more questions after that one. You know, <laughs> goodness, goodness, so many things we can talk about here. And something that it's a, definitely not spoken as eloquently to, but something, a, a piece of advice that I always give some other um, female colleagues is go ahead and eight mile it eight mile the conversation yeah and a lot of the times they're like wait what does eight mile mean and I go oh my gosh please don't tell me I'm that old um and <laughs> I have to like, <laughs> like I have to go through the conversation like are right, you need to watch this movie this is what it means um, but for those who do who are not aware what eight miling is that's exactly actually what Arielle just mentioned right um in order for you to collect your yeses in order for you to really be able to to win in proposing a new project or idea or solution address those potential arguments or hesitations or objections from the very beginning so that we've already counted the argument before an argument even started Mm -hmm. and I think the first piece that you just touched on really really just hits the nail on the head that a lot of the times we are going to be put into these situations whereas you know, we have to demand the respect before we even have an opportunity to be able to pitch the business side of things. So, you know, if I think about this kind of shifting gears slightly, just because I, you're really touching on some important matters here, and it talks about this broader overarching theme of equal representation in sports. Mm-hmm. In your perspective, how can sports do better for creating equal representation for athletes? Yeah, I mean, I was waiting for this question. So again, we could spend a whole day on this. But Okay, so, you know, this this place of creating more representation in sports, how diversity inclusion has been part of that, you know, how marketing is affected by this, all that stuff. I'm going to kind of regurgitate something that I recently said in a conversation. So I was on Topps's Digicon for 2022 last month, and it's one of their two biggest conferences they have a year. And they asked me specifically about, the question was something like, aren't you excited for like how women are being perceived now? Like, doesn't it make you feel great? Something like that. And I told them that my response to that would be bittersweet. So I'm going to repeat a little bit of kind of what I said there. Basically, I don't know if this new wave of diversity and inclusion is really anything more than some lip service and it's better, but talk is cheap. And I do not see enough money being moved to female and minority verticals, despite outward narratives. Women and minority groups have been saying to people for a very long time that we are worth it over and over again. And watching the surgency of diversity dominance lately, it's that bittersweet feeling. Because I get mad. Why did it take this long to listen to us? Because we've been telling everyone that we offer extreme value. 
I mean, women are larger consumers than men. Plus, we dominate most of the population in this country. How, as a business, let's go back to the question I answered first. Y'all are leaving money on the fucking table. So much money on the table. And most women are in control of the finances of their households. So much money is being left on the table with that alone. So is it all of a sudden that people are realizing that? Absolutely not. People didn't care and we need to call it what it is. And I think now the conversation, not that the conversation and the conversations about diversity are present and changing. I just think the conversation can't be ignored because after 2020 and all the stuff that we got to focus on about priorities in our lives and the lives and the world we want to see moving forward, we really focused on the things that matter. And then we started to be vocal about them in a, in a time where we weren't as vocal about that. So in this conversation cannot be ignored and no real change is going to come unless companies and organizations evaluate the people who kept holding down minority groups the past few decades and figure out why and then act on where they lacked and frankly fire those people. They should not be sitting in those leadership positions. The principle of being an ally has to actually be present within your leaders or internal structure, not just within the words of your marketing department or your diversity department. And I can speak to this all day, but what I want to see in the future, and this is my favorite quote that I came up for this conference, which I am now going to trademark and use over and over again, is that I want to see brands put their money where their diversity department's mouths are. And I want to see leagues pushing for more equal pay infrastructure and benefits. I want to see sports television be equally distributed. I want to see agencies give their best employees to the women's verticals too. And I want people to start believing women and minorities because we've been telling you. When it comes to the second part of your question on how that applies to marketing dollars, it's not, it doesn't, it's not there. I am seeing firsthand deals that are coming to my new female clients that are vastly overqualified to men who are also in those campaigns and they are still being underpaid in those offers. And when I ask for more, I am made to feel guilty. No, thank you. The money has to match the words or nothing's going to change. And if you're screaming outwardly, but still doing business the old way internally, you're part of the problem. And it's as simple as that. If you're going to trademark this, please post it on poster and I will purchase this and purchase <laughs> multiple copies of this. I might have to at this point because I think I've said that three times because the first time I said it, the person's eyes. And I was like, I mean, it's I can't believe I'm the first person that said that. It's put your money where your diversity department's mouths are. I do not want to see a Juneteenth post by a freaking company if you do not have black corporate level staff members. Don't do it. Just don't. Mm. Mm -hmm. Same for women's empowerment, or sorry, Women's mm -hmm. History Month. Like my dad's an immigrant from Morocco. I'm Arabic. No one celebrates Arabic Heritage Month, which is April. I don't ever get to see myself represented. I'm so lucky I'm white facing and I know I have that privilege. Mm -hmm. But my dad is an immigrant who became a United States citizen when I was a preteen from a North African country. So it's this, this thing of we can talk all we want and lip service is so cheap. I, and the money is not moving around. I'm watching it. I'm getting deals by huge companies for women's athletes. And I see what they're doing compared to the men. And I know what those comps are because my bread and butter has been male athletes for 17 years. I know these companies are talking outwardly and they are not matching their marketing dollars. You know, I think, let me know, uh, let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but I almost reflect back on one of the main pieces of advice that you had just given, right? It's 
Mm-hmm. How can brands make a better impact among very many things, right? There's so many things that you're just touching on. That's actually really frank, quite frankly, all the different types of initiatives that need to start, that, that need to start happening now. And in order to get there, the fundamental next step for these brands is to listen. Mm-hmm. They've got to listen to their female audiences. My goodness, I'll go out to a game and I will just sit and watch to see who gets up and actually purchases not only merchandise, but food, contestants, all the fun things mm-hmm. that will actually take part in raffles. And it's always the women. It's the majority of the women. They are the ones that are they are the ones that are making the purchases, right? They're the That's ones that. driving the revenue. I mean, and, and when you talk about listening, remember this too. You can only listen to whoever's in the room. So when you've got when you've got commissioners of leagues who have advisory staff, because I'm not going to, I don't even have to name who this commissioner is because anyone listening who knows sports is going to know who I'm talking about. You have advisor staffs where you have somebody representing each team and every person is some as a white man over 55. Who are you listening to? That is mm. currently the structure within the advisor team for a major commissioner in this country. No, thank you. So I think. You know, when you think about me, you're seeing this, right? You're seeing how we can evolve, how we can change. And I'm hoping that you yourself are starting to see too that. I mean, I'm hoping I'm really going to be deferring to you of what you're actually seeing now, but I'm hoping that we're starting to get into this upward rise of like what this actually could look like for a more mm-hmm. equitable future and more equitable sports world. So with that said, I mean, on a lighter note, because I know that we've got a lot of different things that, that, that needs to be addressed, but like what excites you the most? Like where do you yeah. see the industries actually headed? So I do respect the fact that unlike before, I, I feel that there are recent conversations about diversity that have put enough pressure on people to act. So I will give this conversation its kudos where it's deserved. So, okay. The noise made in 2021 about the women's NCAA basketball tournament. We all saw how that turned out online. I don't think the NCAA could be could do anything but act right this year. Right? I mean, like, it kind of goes back to that thing about telling where they lose money. When the NCAA put women's basketball on primetime television, ratings were blown out of the water. And in the final four between the men and women... There was five players between men and women in the final four for the for the NCAA basketball tournaments that were within the top 10 earners in NIL, I think in the country. Four of those were women. So, you know, things like that, like those pressures to act, like it, this really does incite change. And so I am excited about these conversations feeling like they're moving. I mean, the recent, even the, like the recent victory, right. That us women's national team had with the men's national team to create equal pay and structure and infrastructure across all fronts. That's huge. It is the first women's league to ever have an equal CPA to a men's league. Right. So for the first time in nearly my 17 year career in sports, I actually feel hope that things will change instead of just hearing it, knowing it was never going to change. And I think this is a reminder to everyone that sometimes the right decision, like being loud, is not the popular one, but it doesn't mean you don't speak up and it doesn't mean you don't strive for better. Good trouble is the right kind of trouble. And I'm all for breaking the rules when they need to be broken. And I want women and women's sports to continue disrupting. And I'm excited for that future. Mm. Aren't we all? I'm going to have to use that good troubles. It's the right kind of trouble too to be in. Yeah. Well, 
Well, future facing for you. Any exciting things that we can expect from yourself and Moyal yeah. Enterprises? You know, my brand is two months and three weeks old, and it's crazy to see everything that sort of happened in that time frame. So um, I'll be selfish and start with myself. So for me personally, I'm really excited. I was just included in the inaugural Bruin Business 100 class. So UCLA is acknowledging 100 Bruin uh, business leaders across all industries to give resources to and to expose and really create this club. And so to be in the inaugural class for me is beyond an elation. Like I worked there for nine years other than just being a student. Like it's really, really important to me that kind of alma mater feel. So I like that. I like, I like that. I'm really excited about that. And I think that for me too, I'm, you know, I'm happy that I'm controlling my own destiny for a change, uh, and setting, allowing somebody else to dictate my worth. I, I'm really empowered by that. It's really the best feeling ever. For clients, uh, you know, we, we have a couple really great athletes that I think you're going to see, be in surprising, some surprising marketing campaigns coming up. I've got somebody that's going to be the face of two really big up and coming brands. And I was really excited to make sure that she was put in a place to gain wealth herself, but to also set her up for life. One of those deals came with equity. So the harder she works, she also sets herself up for the future with ownership within that company. Um, we have two uh, large sport brand clients right now. One is American Cancer Society. I mean, that was such an honor for them to approach us to try and help us kind of strengthen and make their athlete programs more robust. They felt like there was something missing a little bit. And so they're tapping into our expertise within their framework with the NFL uh, partnership they have and all the other ones they have across many leagues. And I think the one I'm most excited about only because we've put a ton of work and it's going to be debuting next month is there is a company called Adapt Brands and they become the became the first ever hemp beverage that got NSF certified for sport. Why is that significant? If you're an athlete, you cannot consume items that will pop you on a drug test. And the only way for you to guarantee that you are not consuming items that will get you in trouble is if it's NSF certified for sport and there has never been a hemp beverage ever that has been given that accolade and ADAPT is the first one. So we have partnered with them to create their entire athlete verticals and identify the right kind of partners for that brand. So you will see that roll out next month and I cannot wait to see the buzz around that because they're already picking up steam with the uh, recent news about their NSF certification. So those are kind of all the exciting things that I think I've gotten hopefully just to be here in a year. I mean, entrepreneurs are always scared about that not being a possibility, but I'm really uh, fortunate to think that we have a good team and uh, I'm really optimistic for what our, our business is going to be in the future. Mm, well, that's incredibly exciting. And the amount of work and effort, but then also what achievements has there already been that's been recognized to date. Yeah. I think it's incredibly exciting and also to really puts, puts, puts it into practice of what it can look like to take control of your destiny. And yeah. that's ultimately something that all athletes, all sports teams, all professionals should really get to really take a take a note from your book on. It, uh, it hit me that I was making other people wealthy. And then I was subject to somebody telling me what my value was all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a great feeling and place to be in. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations to you. And a final question for you now is if you could give advice to a young woman that is designed to be a future entrepreneur or executive, what would you share with them? This was such a hard one to answer because I wanted to just like talk for half an hour about all of the learning lessons I don't want you to have to learn too. <laughs> um, but I'm gonna, what I decided was to attach it to why I started my business. What I just told you was having somebody determine your self-worth. So 
My piece of advice is don't let anybody make you feel less than because self-worth comes from you and you alone. So I'm going to tell a story. I shared part of an idea I wound up implementing into my business with a former boss. I didn't want to share the idea. I had just mentioned it in passing at a casual dinner about other ideas I had and was more or less sort of forced to disclosing the idea. I was not prepared for the delivery and my delivery was definitely unconfident. I also felt really uncomfortable because I felt forced to explain this idea and the component of the business idea, like I had to explain this idea to not only him, but a table full of people and I had felt forced. So I did it because I was pressured to. And once I was done, this person scoffed at me, was overly critical, rude even. And I felt like he had purposely pushed me into that position to knock me down. Nice, right? Well, I made thousands of dollars off that idea in my first week starting this business. And it's one of the, my, it was one of my company's first returns and it continues to be a return for us. I suppose the idea wasn't really that bad. I just think that he had preferred that I make him wealthy instead of myself. The moral I want someone to take away from this is that worthiness and unconditional self-worth is your choice. I could have been overly consumed by someone else's meanness, but I was not. His definition of my worth is not my self-worth. So to all my women wanting to be entrepreneurs, you will fail if your business if your business does not start out of self-worth. Self-worth allows you to dream high and achieve that height. Self-worth offers you better insight on work-life balance. Self-worth avoids you taking things too personally because building businesses has bumps. Self-worth outwardly projects as confidence something that you're going to need. Please no one else determines your self-worth, only you. This has been so incredible and I personally have learned so much. So thank you, Arielle, for your time. And if you're looking to hear more about what's happening in the health, wellness, and sports industry, subscribe to this podcast and we'll catch you next time on The Drift.